Hi, everybody. Carla here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode here at Carla Reads the Classics. Uh, Before I begin today, let me say a huge thank you to Micah. I really appreciate the subscription. The first one here at Carla Reads the Classics. I'm just thrilled. Thank you so much. Let me also say a huge thank you to all my listeners, wherever you're listening from. My dashboard today at Anchor showed that I have uh, almost 88,000 total plays, and I'm so grateful for each and every play. Thank you very much. Now, let's get into another title. This one is called We Were Liars, and it's a request via email from Alexis, who said she's a fan of the podcast and that it sometimes helps her get to sleep, which I totally take as a compliment. We Were Liars is a New York Times bestseller, and it's by E. Lockhart. While it's not a traditional classic like I like to present here at Carla Reads the Classics, uh, I just wanted to honor that request. And the Times calls this book utterly unforgettable, and I can't wait to hear what you think. And now, without further delay, I give you E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Part one, welcome. Welcome to the beautiful Sinclair family. No one is a criminal. No one is an addict. No one is a failure. The Sinclairs are athletic, tall, and handsome. We are old money Democrats. Our smiles are wide, our chins square, and our tennis serves aggressive. It doesn't matter if divorce shreds the muscles of our hearts so that they will hardly beat without a struggle. It doesn't matter if trust fund money is running out, if credit card bills go unpaid on the kitchen counter. It doesn't matter if there's a cluster of pill bottles on the bedside table. It doesn't matter if one of us is desperately, desperately in love. So much in love that equally desperate measures must be taken. We are Sinclairs. No one is needy. No one is wrong. We live, at least in the summertime, on a private island off the coast of Massachusetts. Perhaps that is all you need to know. My full name is Cadence Sinclair Eastman. I live in Burlington, Vermont, with Mummy and three dogs. I am nearly 18. I own a well-used library card and not much else, though it is true I live in a grand house full of expensive, useless objects. I used to be blonde, but now my hair is black. I used to be strong, but now I am weak. I used to be pretty, but now I look sick. It is true I suffer migraines since my accident. It is true that I do not suffer fools. I like a twist of meaning. You see, suffer migraines, do not suffer fools. The word means almost the same as it did in the previous sentence, but not quite. Suffer. You could say it means endure, but that's not exactly right. My story starts before the accident. June of the summer, I was 15. My father ran off with some woman he loved more than us. Dad was a middling, successful professor of military history. Back then, I adored him. He wore tweed jackets. He was gaunt. He drank milky tea. 
He was fond of board games and let me win, fond of boats and taught me to kayak, fond of bicycles, books, and art museums. He was never fond of dogs, and it was a sign of how much he loved my mother that he let our golden retriever sleep on the sofas and walk them three miles every morning. He was never fond of my grandparents either, and it was a sign of how much he loved both me and Mummy that he spent every summer in Windmere House on Beechwood Island, writing articles on wars fought long ago and putting on a smile for the relatives at every meal. That June, summer 15, Dad announced he was leaving and departed two days later. He told my mother he wasn't a Sinclair and couldn't try to be one any longer. He couldn't smile, couldn't lie, couldn't be part of that beautiful family in those beautiful houses. Couldn't, couldn't, wouldn't. He had hired moving vans already. He rented a house, too. My father put a last suitcase into the back seat of the Mercedes, he was leaving Mummy with only the sob, and started the engine. Then he pulled out a gun and shot me in the chest. I was standing on the lawn and I fell. The bullet hole opened wide and my heart rolled out of my rib cage and down into a flower bed. Blood gushed rhythmically from my open wound, then from my eyes, my ears, my mouth. It tasted like salt and failure. The bright red shame of being unloved soaked the grass in front of our house, the bricks of the path, the steps to the porch. My heart spasmed among the peonies like a trout. Mummy snapped. She said, get hold of myself. Be normal now, she said. Right now, she said. Because you are. Because you can be. Don't cause a scene, she told me. Breathe and sit up. I did what she asked. She was all I had left. Mummy and I tilted our square chins high as Dad drove down the hill. Then we went indoors and trashed the gifts he'd given us. Jewelry, clothes, books, anything. In the days that followed, we got rid of the couch and armchairs my parents had bought together, tossed the wedding china, the silver, the photographs. We purchased new furniture, hired a decorator, placed an order for Tiffany silverware, spent a day walking through art galleries, and bought paintings to cover the empty, the empty spaces on our walls. We asked Granddad's lawyers to secure Mummy's assets. Then we packed our bags and went to Beechwood Island. Penny, Carrie, and Bess are the daughters of Tipper and Harris Sinclair. Harris came into his money at 21 after Harvard and grew the fortune doing business I never bothered to understand. He inherited houses and land. He made intelligent decisions about the stock market. He married Tipper and kept her in the kitchen and the garden. He put her on display in pearls and on sailboats. She seemed to enjoy it. Granddad's only failure was that he never had a son, but no matter. The Sinclair daughters were sunburnt and blessed. Tall, merry, and rich, those girls were like princesses in a fairy tale. They were known throughout Boston, Harvard, Yard, and, and Martha's Vineyard for their cashmere cardigans and grand parties. They were made for legends, made for princes and Ivy League schools, ivory statues, and majestic houses. Granddad and Tipper loved the girls so they couldn't say whom they loved best. First Carrie, then Penny, then Bess, 
then carry again. There were splashy weddings with salmon and harpists, then bright blonde grandchildren and funny blonde dogs. No one could ever have been prouder of their beautiful American girls than Tipper and Harris were back then. They built three new houses on their craggy private island and gave them each a name. Windmere for Penny, Redgate for Carrie, and Cuddledown for Bess. I am the eldest Sinclair grandchild, heiress to the island, the fortune, and the expectations. Well, probably. Me, Johnny, Mirren, and Gat. Gat, Mirren, Johnny, and me. The family calls us the Four Liars, and probably we deserve it. We are all nearly the same age, and we all have birthdays in the fall. Most years on the island, we've been trouble. Gat started coming to Beechwood the year we were eight. Summer eight, we call it. Before that, Mirren, Johnny, and I weren't liars. We were nothing but cousins, and Johnny was a pain because he didn't like playing with girls. Johnny, he is bounce, effort, and snark. Back then, he would hang our Barbies by the necks or shoot us with guns made of Lego. Mirren, she is sugar, curiosity, and rain. Back then, she spent long afternoons with Taft and the twins splashing at the big beach while I drew pictures on graph paper and read in the hammock and the Claremont house porch. Then Gat came to spend summers with us. Aunt Carrie's husband left her when she was pregnant with Johnny's brother, Will. I don't know what happened. The family never speaks of it. By summer eight, Will was a baby and Carrie had taken up with Ed already. This Ed, he was an art dealer and he adored the kids. That was all we'd heard about him when Carrie announced she was bringing him to Beechwood along with Johnny and the baby. They were the last to arrive that summer and most of us were on the dock waiting for the boat to pull in. Granddad lifted me up so I could wave at Johnny who was wearing an orange life vest and shouting over the prow. Granny Tipper stood next to us. She turned away from the boat for a moment, reached in her pocket, and brought out a white peppermint, unwrapped it, and tucked it into my mouth. As she looked back at the boat, Gran's face changed. I squinted to see what she saw. Carrie stepped off with Will on her hip. He was in a baby's yellow life vest and was really no more than a shock of white blonde hair sticking up over it. A cheer went up at the sight of him. That vest, which we all had worn as babies. The hair. How wonderful that this little boy we didn't know yet was so obviously a Sinclair. Johnny leapt off the boat and threw his own vest on the dock. First thing, he ran up to Mirren and kicked her. Then he kicked me kicked the twins, walked over to our grandparents, and stood up straight. Good to see you, Granny and Granddad. I look forward to a happy summer. Tipper hugged him. Your mother told you to say that, didn't she? Yes, said Johnny. And I'm to say, nice to see you again. Good boy. Now can I go? Tipper kissed his freckled cheek. Go on then. Ed followed Johnny, having stopped to help the staff unload the luggage from the motorboat. He was tall and slim. His skin was very dark. Indian heritage, we'd later learn. He wore black framed glasses and was dressed in dapper city clothes, a linen suit and striped shirt. The pants were wrinkled from traveling. Granddad set me down. Granny, 
Granny Tipper's mouth made a straight line. Then she showed all her teeth and went forward. You must be Ed. What a lovely surprise. He shook hands. Didn't Carrie tell you we were coming? Of course she did. Ed looked around at our white, white family, turned to Carrie. Where's Gat? They called for him, and he climbed from the inside of the boat, taking off his life vest, looking down to undo the buckles. Mother, Dad, said Carrie, we bought Ed's nephew to play with Johnny. This is Gat Patil. Granddad reached out and patted Gat's head. Hello, young man. Hello. His father passed on just this year, explained Carrie. He and Johnny are the best of friends. It's a big help to Ed's sister if we take him for a few weeks. And Gat, you'll get to have cookouts and go swimming like we talked about, okay? But Gat didn't answer. He was looking at me. His nose was dramatic, his mouth sweet, skin deep brown, hair black and waving, body wired with energy. Gat seemed spring-loaded, like he was searching for something. He was contemplation and enthusiasm, ambition and strong coffee. I could have looked at him forever. Our eyes locked. I turned and ran away. Gat followed. I could hear his feet behind me on the wooden walkways that crossed the island. I kept running. He kept following. Johnny chased Gat, and Marin chased Johnny. The adults remained talking on the dock, circling politely around Ed, cooing over baby Will. The littles did whatever littles do. We four stopped running at the tiny beach down by Cuddle Down House. It's a small stretch of sand with high rocks on either side. No one used it much back then. The big beach had softer sand and less seaweed. Marin took off her shoes and the rest of us followed. We tossed stones into the water. We just existed. I wrote our names in the sand. Cadence, Marin, Johnny, and Gat. Gat, Johnny, Marin, and Candace. That was the beginning of us. Johnny begged to have Gat stay longer. He got what he wanted. The next year, he begged to have him come for the entire summer. Gat came. Johnny was the first grandson. My grandparents almost never said no to Johnny. Summer 14, Gat and I took out the small motorboat alone. It was just after breakfast. Bess made Marin play tennis with the twins and Taft. Johnny had started running that year and was doing loops around the perimeter path. Gat found me in the Claremont, in the Claremont kitchen and asked, did I want to take the boat out? Not really. I wanted to go back to bed with a book. Please? Gat almost never said please. Take it out yourself. I can't borrow it, he said. I don't feel right. Of course you can borrow it. Not without one of you. He was being ridiculous. Where do you want to go? I asked. I just want to get off island. Sometimes I, I can't stand it here. I couldn't imagine then what it was he couldn't stand, but I said, all right. We motored out to sea in wind jackets and bathing suits. After a bit, Gat cut the engine. We sat eating pistachios and breathing salt air. The sunlight shone on the water. Let's go in, I said. Gat jumped in and I followed, but the water was so much colder than off the beach, it snatched our breath. The sun went behind a cloud. 
We laughed, panicky laughs, and shouted that it was the stupidest idea to get in the water. What had we been thinking? There were sharks off the coast. Everybody knew that. Don't talk about sharks, God! We scrambled and pushed each other, struggling to be the first one up the ladder at the back of the boat. After a minute, Gat leaned back and let me go first. Not because you're a girl, but because I'm a good person, he told me. Thanks. I stuck out my tongue. But when a shark bites my legs off, promised to write a speech about how awesome I was. Done, I said. Gatwick Matthew Patil made a delicious meal. It seemed hysterically funny to be so cold. We didn't have towels. We huddled together under a fleece blanket we found under, under the seats, our bare shoulders touching each other, cold feet on top of one another. This is only so we don't get hypothermia, said Gat. Don't think I find you pretty or anything. I know you don't. You're hogging the blanket. Sorry. A pause, Gat said. I do find you pretty, Katie. I didn't mean that the way it came out. In fact, when did you get so pretty? It's distracting. I look the same as always. You changed over the school year. It's putting me off my game. You have a game? He nodded solemnly. That is the dumbest thing I ever heard. What is your game? Nothing penetrates my armor. Hadn't you noticed? That made me laugh. No. Damn, I thought it was working. We changed the subject, talked about bringing the Littles to Edgartown to see a movie in the afternoon about sharks and whether they really ate people about plants versus zombies. Then we drove back to the island. Not long after that, Gat started lending me his books and finding me at the tiny beach in the early evenings. He'd search me out when I was lying on the Windmere lawn with the Goldens. We started walking together on the path that circles the island, Gat in front and me behind. We'd talk about books or invent imaginary worlds. Sometimes we'd end up walking several times around the edge before we got hungry or bored. Beach roses lined the path, deep pink. Their smell was faint and sweet. One day, I looked at Gat lying in the Claremont hammock with a book and he seemed, well... Like he was mine, like he was my particular person. I got in the hammock, and I got in the hammock next to him silently. I took the pen out of his hand, he always read with a pen, and wrote Gat on the back of his left and Cadence on the back of his right. He took the pen from me, wrote Gat on the back of my left and Cadence on the back of my right. I am not talking about fate. I don't believe in destiny or soulmates or the supernatural. I just mean we understood each other all the way. But we were only 14. I had never kissed a boy, though I would kiss a few the next school year. And somehow we didn't label it love. Summer 15, I arrived a week later than the others. Dad had left us and Mummy and I had all that shopping to do, consulting the decorator and everything. Johnny and Mirren met us at the dock. 
pink in the cheeks and full of summer plans. They were staging a family tennis tournament and had bookmarked ice cream recipes. We would go sailing, build bonfires. The little swarmed and yelled like always. The aunt smiled chilly smiles. After a bustle of arrival, everyone went to Claremont for cocktail hour. I went to Redgate looking for Gat. Redgate is a much smaller house than Claremont, but it still has four bedrooms up top. It's where Johnny, Gat, and Will live with Aunt Carrie, plus Ed, when he was there, which wasn't often. I walked to the kitchen door and looked through the screen. Gat didn't see me at first. He was standing at the counter wearing a worn gray t-shirt and jeans. His shoulders were broader than I remembered. He untied a dried flower from where it hung upside down on a ribbon in the window over the sink. The flower was a beech rose, pink and loosely constructed, the kind that grows along the beechwood perimeter. Gat, my gat. He had picked me a rose from our favorite walking place. He had hung it to dry and waited for me to arrive on the island so he could give it to me. I had kissed an unimportant boy, or three by now. I had lost my dad. I had come here to this island from a house of tears and falsehood. And I saw Gat, and I saw that rose in his hand, and in that one moment, with the sunlight from the window shining in on him, the apples on the kitchen counter, the smell of wood and the ocean in the air, I did call it love. It was love, and it hit me so hard I leaned against the screen door that stood still between us just to stay vertical. I wanted to touch him like he was a bunny, a kitten, something so special and soft your fingertips can't leave it alone. The universe was good because he was in it. I loved the hole in his jeans and the dirt on his bare feet and the scab on his elbow and the scar that laced through one eyebrow. Gat, my gat. As I stood there, staring, he put the rose in an envelope. He searched for a pen, banging drawers open and shut, found one in his own pocket, and wrote. I didn't realize he was writing an address until he pulled a roll of stamps from a kitchen drawer. Gat stamped the envelope, wrote a return address. It wasn't for me. I left the red gate door before he saw me and ran down to the perimeter. I watched the darkening sky alone. I tore all the roses off a single sad bush and threw them, one after the other, into the angry sea. That brings us to the end of part one, segment six of E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. I hope you enjoy the reading here at Carla Reads the Classics, and I hope you stay tuned for further readings. Until next time.